Welcome everyone. We are live from CRC Caroline Springs in Melbourne, Australia, and you're listening to CRC Live on Bring Bank Live. I'm Lily, your host today, and my co-hosts today are Joanne, Natalie, Noah, and Olivia. And could we please give a warm welcome to our special guest, Miss Suzanne Dick. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Um, she is representing CoHealth today. Hi, Suzanne. How are you? Hi, very well. Very well, thank you. So I'm just going to get straight into the questions. Um, when growing up, did you find it easier or difficult to find mental support in your community? And do you think that has helped you shape a better work style today? Oh, really good question. I think definitely. So when I was young, I'm not going to disclose my age, but it does feel like <laughs> a long time ago. Um, there certainly wasn't the awareness of mental health that there is today. So I think campaigns like Are You OK? Mental Health Week, which we're excited to be here for today, have certainly raised awareness um, and access is a lot easier. Um, having said that, we've still got a long way to go so that we know for some people, they're much more able to navigate the system and are well resourced to do so. Um, but for other um, communities, it's still really, really tough. You know, there's been a lot of statistics recently, especially with lockdowns and COVID, that there's been a rise in mental health issues with teenagers. Mm -hmm. And I know that COVID's a quite large contributing factor to that, but what else do you think could be a driving force behind that rise in mental health? Yeah, look, again, we did see that rise um, of mental health conditions post-COVID um, in young people, um, but also across the board as a whole. Yeah. So if we think about what happened to our brain during that time, we were told that the things that we took for granted were now really scary. So um, hugging someone, being close to loved ones, um, we were told you know, the opposite of what we normally think around mental health, that that's a good thing, but that was now dangerous. And so there was actually some changes that happened in our brain. So if you know about fight, flight and freeze, yeah. um, where things that we took for granted now produced a frightening response. And so we get a bit confused by that and it re requires our brain to start to work in a different way. Hmm. And then over a much longer period of time, so if you think about the extended lockdowns in Victoria, our brain actually starts to think about that as normal. And so then we come out of lockdowns and we start to resume our normal activity, but our brain's saying, what the hell, you know? <laughs> This is a really scary thing to be doing. So seeing our friends, even if I think about greeting you guys today, you know, it's been slow to come back to that idea of shaking hands is a safe thing to do. So yeah. if we think about all the challenges that young people might have faced anyway as part of normal development growing up, then we had this big interruption um, and then we had the coming out of that. So it kind of makes sense to me that our brains kind of took a minute to adjust and yeah. are still taking a minute to kind of reconnect and we can probably see that over the coming years. Um, but if I, you think about your experience coming out of lockdown, Olivia, what did you notice about yourself when you started to see your friends after a long time of not seeing your friends? Yeah, I mean, it was really good to be able to like see people again and like, yeah. you know, re-enter that social area of like being able to talk to people frequently and not having to call or text or like see someone through a screen just like yeah. having that face-to-face -face connection so it was really exciting yeah did anyone else notice any nervousness yeah I feel like it's really interesting how you're talking about the scientific side of it and I feel like I coming out of lockdown I felt almost socially anxious yeah. going out and doing things and going to like public places it felt Yes, like socially anxious, which I didn't, which I've never felt before. So it's very interesting. Yeah, yeah, so that's just your brain adjusting. So if you think mm -hmm. about working out muscles in different ways, your brain was trying to adjust to this idea of something was scary and then it's not scary mm -hmm. and it just taking some time. So we kind of had to make ourselves do it more and then hopefully that anxiety settled over time mm -hmm. and it became familiar again. But for some people who maybe already had a bit of a predisposition to anxiety or maybe had something else going on, 
that transition has been more difficult and those problems haven't gone away um, as they've done that re-entry out of lockdowns and COVID. Um, Joanne, what did you think about it? Um, Coming out of lockdown, I felt like I was just so scared to talk to people again. Um, But I feel like over this year, I've just become more confident in myself and like who I am and like I've become like way better. So I'm just really proud of that. And yeah, you can really see the difference over what you were in lockdown to what you are now. But yeah. Can you think about what was it that you did, Joanne, that helped you feel more confident this year? It was basically my friends. I just made so many new friends and formed so many new relationships with people. And I just, yeah, they really helped me. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. So again, if we take the things that help us navigate that re-entry and have good mental health, it really is about connection. So what you're describing is even though you might have had that anxious feeling, being able to get out and talk to people, um, develop a community was helpful. And for some people that's easy to do, um, even if you might feel a bit nervous through the process, but for other people that's a bit more of a challenge. Does anyone else have any more questions for Suzanne? On the topic of um, being anxious and mental health, which <laughs> this is what you're here to talk about, but like what are some signs that a young person might be experiencing mental health issues? Yeah, another great question. So it's kind of about feeling a bit off and that feeling of being off persisting over a period of time. So all the normal things, you know, we all go up and down in our moods, particularly, you know, when we're a young person. Um, There's lots of changes in our body. There's changes in our friendship groups. We're being asked to be more independent and that might be really comfortable or we might be being held back from being independent and that can feel challenging as well. But when that feeling doesn't go away and you tend to have longer periods of kind of feeling a bit flat or a bit anxious or a bit disconnected it's a good time to start to have a bit of a reflection and think about what's going on and again if you're not doing the things that you would normally do so you love hanging out with your friends but um, you know you stop doing that or you stop talking to family um, and disengaging Um, but I would also say there's another part to that question which we got the chance to talk about earlier which is when we talk about mental health, what do we actually mean? And particularly in a community like Brimbank, um, which is where I'm running my programs at the moment, there's a high pro- population who was actually born overseas or had a parent born overseas. Um, so a really important part of my work at the moment is working with people from other cultures mm-hmm. to talk about is mental health really the right term? You know, we talk about feeling sick in our heart or connected to community or interruptions to flow rather than what is a kind of Western European conception mm-hmm. of mental health. So mm-hmm. I'm asking if we're asking the right question. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that question about are you okay is mm-hmm. a really good one. Yeah. And if your heart is hurting, talk to someone about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you think there are like social media, especially now, would play an issue, would play a part in those like issues? Yeah, social media is a big one, isn't it? Because there's lots that's good about it. It helps us to connect to people. Um, you know, if this, if I'm finding it difficult to fit in my community that is in my physical vicinity. So if we think about being at school, for example, you kind of have your location in common, but there might be other things that you don't have in common. And, and there might be people that you would be friends with for life and people who you probably wouldn't see again if you didn't live in the same community. So if I'm in that situation where I'm struggling at school to kind of find my people, social media is fantastic. You know, gaming communities, Facebook communities, all of that is really important. But it's like all things. It's um, I'm sorry to sound old, but it's kind <laughs> of like what your mother told you, that good things in moderation, you mm-hmm. know, that when you're not taking breaks from social media, when that's your primary reference point, when you're using it to go to sleep at night, it's probably a sign that your influences, um, the balance might be out of proportion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we talked about before, like, 
signs of a young person struggling, like, you know, with their emotions or with mental health. And like, you know, if you recognize in yourself that you're struggling with mental health, what kind of things can these people do to be able to reach out for help or like things that they can do themselves just to start trying to feel better? Yeah. Um, it, it, to remember that you're not alone is the yeah. first part. So oftentimes um, one of the questions I get asked about a lot is resilience. How do I actually build resilience to avoid mental health issues? But resilience is really about all the things we do before we feel like we're being impacted. So um, things like diet, sleep, and sleeps are like a really hard one when you're a young person, mm-hmm. right, because you've got to get up and go to school. Mm-hmm. But we know that teenagers need, you know, about 10 hours sleep a night um, and you don't want to go to sleep until late and that's a hormonal thing. That's not yeah. necessarily a personal choice thing. So really attending to all the basics and when you find not eating, um, that your sleep is out of pattern, whether you can't sleep or you're sleeping too much, you know, we talk about Dr. Google, but sometimes Dr. Google can be pretty handy. <laughs> so there's a lot of online um, uh, resources like Reach Out, Headspace, that are good as a first point of contact to get some information. And then if you think that you don't have anyone in your life that you can talk to, you might want to reach out to a professional. But thinking about who is in your life, like a trusted mentor or a teacher or a friend, um, a parent um, of a friend or your parent, to have that conversation with about, look, I'm not feeling okay, and then helping to guide it. Because when you try and manage these problems on your own, they get bigger and you can think it is only you. Um, And, again, if we think about our community, we can often feel like it is our fault. Why is everybody else who I see on social media or I see at school, they look like they've got it all together and I can't. But when we talk to people, who's had that experience where you share a problem and someone else goes, I, I remember when I felt like that. Yeah. And that's a big part of my job as a psychologist is letting people know that they're not alone and that the feelings will pass. Um, so first port of call, you know, check out some online resources. Um, talk to a friend, talk to a trusted older person. Um, and then if you need to, you can talk to your GP and reach out for professional help. Yeah. I think that would be quite helpful to our um, school community, like people who are viewing this and just uh, our younger listeners. Um But if you're just tuning in, we are live from CRC Caroline Springs in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Lily, your host, and my co-hosts today are Joanne, Natalie, Noah and Olivia. And with our special guest today, Miss Suzanne Dick, representing CoHealth. And you're listening to CRC Live on Bring Bank Live. Moving on to the next question, how do you feel most teens are affected by mental health in present time and what can be the cause of it? Oh, whenever I say most teens, I get nervous <laughs> because everybody's got their own individual backstory, right? So if I talk about the Brimbank community, for example, there's not one Brimbank community. Like it's a very diverse community. We've got older people, we've got younger people. So when I talk about young people with mental health issues, if I think about my LGBTIQ group, they've got different experiences and challenges as compared to someone who's quite perfectionistic. Um, So when I think about um, what are the mental health challenges facing young people, it's that everybody's got their own story. Mm -hmm. Everybody's got their own thing that they're bringing to their lives and we don't always know that backstory. And so often we are engaging with people and we see the front page, you know, we see the public image but we don't know the story they're telling themselves. We don't know what people are going home to. And so, um, you know, if we talk about having compassion for yourself, saying, actually, I'm doing a pretty good job. I'm navigating lots of difficult transitions. Um, I might have had a relationship loss. I might have a sick parent. Um, So that idea of being kind to yourself, but also kind to each other. 
um, and asking lots of questions about, hey, is that person just being a jerk today because they're a jerk generally? Mm-hmm. Um, or is that person actually acting a bit out of character and maybe I need to ask a, a question and try and engage with them rather than just getting ticked off? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, like, you know, starting to talk in and like, how you perceive people around you and like how you don't know what people might be going through. And if someone's acting off, that's could be something deeper than them just being like rude. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, I think we've all seen like loved ones go through difficult times or like friends, family. How would someone from the outside perspective of someone who's struggling be able to help them, be able to engage with them? Yeah, it can be really tricky because if I think about the times in my life when I've been hurting, often you can have feelings of shame and you want to protect yourself or um, you're having a lot of um, critique in your own head about I should be able to cope with this, I should be able to do better. So oftentimes when someone reaches out to us, we can push them away. Um, So the first thing is to kind of be persistent um, and to be gentle and do it with the person on their terms. So it's no good trying to do things when you've only got 10 minutes. If you're going to ask the question about, you know, what's happening for you, is there anything on your mind, you have to actually have time to follow it through and that might mean um, going off and doing something else. So if I think about my son who's eight, um, if I try and sit him down for a chat, it is not going to work. He's just (laughs) going to like blow me off, I'm okay. But when we're in the car driving to different activities, he'll kind of chat away and, and pick my opportunity to kind of find out more about his day and what's going on in his world. So um, thinking about how and when you approach someone, making sure that you've got time available and that you keep following up and let them know that you care so that I am here. Even if you're not ready to talk, whatever you're going through, um, I'm, I'm willing to listen and I might not have the answer, um, but I can certainly um, help you find whatever it is that you might be needing. Yeah. I think that would be like quite helpful to both like children and adults, like specifically ones who don't know how to approach their children. Um, Do you have any other tips for families who are trying to grow a more open space? Yeah. Families is tricky, right? Because sometimes the parents are the bad guys and they need to be, you know, that um, if we think about young people in particular, you're going through trying to develop your own identity, set your own rules, you're ready for independence, and you might really feel like the parents are putting the brakes on. Um, But sometimes can be really tricky again I'm saying as a parent to let go as well and sometimes parents can hold on too tight and so open communication and being able to talk about when you're not agitated when there's not a particular issue how you're feeling in the relationship so for parents it's about saying I know we had that conflict let me understand how you're thinking about that let me understand your reasoning and what would need to happen for me to feel okay about that decision Um, and for kids to be able to say I really didn't like it when you did that it disrespected me I felt like it didn't value my kind of idea and my sense of my own kind of strengths and competence and capability. Um, Having said that, there are some parents who are not open to that conversation. Um, You know, if we've got good relationships, then parents are willing to negotiate that. But for some parents in our, you know, who might be experiencing family violence or parents who haven't been taught these skills themselves, um, again, if I think about some of the culturally diverse backgrounds we work from, you know, they're hierarchical, you know, they're, they're patriarchal or matriarchal. There's a, there's a the children follow mm. and the children born in a culture that's quite different um, it can cause real clashes and so again having an open dialogue um, is a really important part of that process where you can yeah 
So, you know, before when we were speaking about like strategies to help getting better, you spoke about reaching out to maybe a professional or to mm-hmm. family and friends. And yet that can be a very daunting and scary task to admit that, hey, I'm not feeling okay and I need help. Mm-hmm. So what advice could you give to maybe some young people listening who are thinking of reaching out or opening up, but they're scared to? Yeah. So I guess I'm going to ask a question with a question. Yeah. How's it feeling to talk to me today? Today, you know, all of the interviews have been quite nervous because you're speaking to someone you've never really spoken to before and, like, it's recorded and, you know, it can be quite stressful. But, you know, once you get into things, it becomes a bit easier. I reckon that's a really nice analogy for how it is to talk to a professional. Yeah. That it starts out a bit scary and a bit nervous and you're not going to be sure about what you even want to say. But I promise I don't have horns and neither (laughs) does anyone else. And so it's nothing more scary than what we're doing right now, which is thinking about complex problems Mm. um, in a non-judgmental way, a non-blaming way um, to see if we can come up with some ideas together because I don't pretend to be the expert in your life. I don't know what it's like to be in Noah's shoes. I really don't. (laughs) Um, To be, you know, a teenager in this area growing up in this life. But I'm curious about it and I have some skills and tools that might help. They might not, but we can figure it out together. Yeah. Um, Could you tell us about some of the work that you do to – Uh, help other people, um, specifically with mental health? Yeah, so I've worked with lots of different people over the course of my career. So I've been working in mental health for 20 years um, and I have a really strong interest in working with people who are experiencing social disadvantage. So for whatever reason, um, have struggled to um, get access to services. So whether that's working in prisons, um, whether that's working in mental health facilities um, and now in my work with the Brimbank community, those people, um, my program is all about trying to engage communities who have kind of high complexity needs but don't normally access services. So um, the work I do is very much like what I'm doing now, which is about listening, talking and linking people into different things as well as some particular strategies. So again, if I think about I used to work in a university counselling service as well, um, some of the early work was a bit boring because it was about what's your study timetable, mm-hmm. how much sleep are you getting, what are you eating, how much exercise are you doing, how much time are you spending with friends. But if we can't sort it out with that kind of stuff, then we move into the more psychological therapies, which are usually talking based, um, but looking at ways that you understand the world and kind of checking out, are they evidence based? Mm. Uh, Would you give that advice to a friend if you're saying, oh, I'm so stupid, I should have been able to um, do that? An example of cognitive behaviour therapy, which is a, a tool that psychologists often use, would be to say, would you say that to someone else? Where's mm. your evidence for the fact that you're stupid? Because you got a B last time, mm. you know. So really working on the skills and strategies to evaluate those thoughts that can just randomly pop into our mind and let go of them a bit because we hold them as if they're truths. But thoughts are just things that come and go. They're just kind of things in our brain firing yeah. that we can pay attention to or not. And if you think about mindfulness, that's what the mindfulness movement kind of talks about. Um, what is it that drove you to become a psychiatrist, psychologist? Psychologist, <laughs> yeah. And for those of you that are wondering, it's a really good point. So psychologist, psychiatrist. Um, psychiatrist can prescribe medication and is a medical doctor. Mm-hmm. Put me in an operating theatre or a medical situation. I'm not good with that. I'm <laughs> great with mental crisis. I'll dive into any kind of emotional issue, but in a hospital I'd be no good. Um, so what drove me to become a psychologist? Mm-hmm. Um, I actually had a really great year 11 and 12 teacher. Um, who started to open my eyes to the way in which people work, that things, yeah, just started to really lead my curiosity about um, how people work and how the brain works. 
Um, I started off down a trajectory of, as I said, um, moving into forensic psychology and really thinking about um, how people work and why people do what they do. Um, Part of that was about understanding other people, but I think it was also partly about understanding myself um, and wanting to know why some of the big feelings I had were happening because we all have big feelings um, and trying to understand why that was happening and how how we might be able to work with it. So what was like the biggest challenge working as a psychologist? Oh, biggest challenge. Um, There's a few. Sometimes I I get worried about how much resourcing there is. I would always like to do more. Mm -hmm. And I think that when I'm experiencing or noticing where there's systemic disadvantage, Mm -hmm. um, if we think about, you know, I'm a white cis woman, um, so I have considerable privilege that comes with that. When I work with our First Nations people or our refugee populations, um, I can feel quite angry sometimes Mm -hmm. about the way the systems are set up that perpetuate, you know, anyone in that situation would have a mental health issue. Um, Mm -hmm. It's not about the person, it's about the systems and structures that create that. And sometimes... I wish I could talk to our governments a little bit more about that. So, like, you've been speaking about how you work with different cultures and, like, very multicultural families and how, you know, um, talks about mental health and just talks in general very differ from each family. Like, what are some of the biggest differences that you've noticed from maybe, like, um, a culture, like a multicultural family compared to, like, you know, just an Australian family? Like, what would the main differences be? Um... Oh, that's a really tricky question (laughs) because, again, there's so many different families actually within that. I think um, from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds, um, there's not as much language around mental health that Mm. different words are used. Um, And particularly if I think about our migrant communities, um, there's a very strong work ethic and, you know, if we think about our hierarchy of needs, it's very hard to focus on mental health when you're attending to your basic needs like housing, food. Mm. And so this idea of just get on with it because of those challenges of daily living um, forces people to kind of push their feelings down or push them inside. Um, That's not to say that's not true in other communities, but Mm. privilege can protect people a little bit from that and create more space to have those conversations. Mm. So I I would say as a general rule, not always, but that's a factor. Um, And I think the, um, you know, we talk about mental health literacy, you know, the awareness and and it's great to hear that COVID has really made it much more okay to talk about mental health in diverse communities. Mm. Um, What do you think would be the most rewarding thing about um, supporting people and helping them improve? My job is a privilege that I love every day because I get to see people get better. So if you think about when you're a young person, one of the biggest challenges is that you you don't know that it gets better, you know, that you're feeling often really big feelings. If we think about where great art, great music comes from, it's from heartbreak, right? You're having first relationships, you're having friendship ruptures, you're trying and failing to get something that you really wanted. Um, and so for me, I get to sit on the other side of that and say, you're in a really tough place right now and I can't feel what you're feeling but I can help you get to the other side and people share their vulnerability, they share um, their wisdom, we share humour, you know, we can have a laugh um, and, and that's a real privilege that people let you into their lives in that way. So that's what I love. Mm. Your, jo- your job shares like so many experiences with people. I was told that when entering the psychology field you have to have a closed heart and opened mind. Is that true? Oh, I wouldn't say that. (laughs) 
closed heart. Look, I would say, and I guess it's one of the fears. So if I think about people who have experienced a lot of trauma in their lives and don't trust very easily, um, they would say to me all the time, you're just doing this for the money. You know, mm-hmm. this is a job. Um, and I would say there's easier ways to make money <laughs> than <laughs> sit in these spaces. So really a relationship is a genuine thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it goes two ways. You can't trust me if I don't believe in you and mm-hmm. connect to you. So relationships goes two ways. Mm-hmm. So the people that I have finished seeing, I will think about them long after and wonder how they're going. Yeah. You know, I'll hold them in my heart. I, the, the connection is real. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think you need both would yeah. be my correction to that <laughs> analogy. Um, I think what you have said today was quite interesting and I hope that our listeners have thought so as well. Um, but that's all we have time for today. It's been a great pleasure talking to you and we are live from CRC Caroline Springs in Melbourne, Australia. I was your host today. My name is Lily and my co-hosts today were Joanne, Noah and Olivia. Thank you for tuning in and thank you, Miss Suzanne, for coming in. Have a wonderful rest of your day or night. This is CRC Live, Bring Bank Live. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.